Al-Jazeera podcast. Hi there, Malika Bilal here. I'm handing the mic this week to my Al-Jazeera colleague, Kevin Hurden. Enjoy. El Salvador, a Central American nation once considered the murder capital of the world. For decades, rival gangs ruled the streets of El Salvador. In March 2022, it saw one of the worst spikes in violence over a weekend since the Civil War ended in 1992. The National Civil Police reporting 14 people murdered on Friday and 62 the following day, making Saturday one of the deadliest days in 30 years. The government quickly declared a state of emergency, easing restrictions for the national police to go after the gangs and arrest them. President Nayib Bukele declared war on gangs, imposing emergency security measures and giving police sweeping powers of arrest. Nearly 70,000 people have been arrested since the crackdown. And in less than a year, the country's murder rate dropped by over 50 percent. It's something President Nayib Bukele is proud of. We're on our way to be the safest country in the whole American continent. But many critics fear that President Bukele is using these measures to tighten his grip on power. Is El Salvador turning into a police state? I'm Kevin Hurton, and this is The Take. Today, we're talking to Monica Villamizar a correspondent who recently filmed a documentary for Al Jazeera's Fault Lines in El Salvador, where she found shocking abuses in the country's justice system. Monica has covered the gangs in Central America for many years. Well, the gangs in Central America, it's a very interesting phenomenon because they were actually sort of a U.S. phenomenon, and very few people know this. When the Civil War happened and a lot of people migrated to the United States, they were resettled in impoverished communities, etc., where there was a lot of crime and a lot of different gangs, African-American and Mexican. And the Salvadorians, Hondurans, sort of stuck together and had to defend themselves from these gangs. And they created their own Central American gangs, which are MS-13 and 18th Street or Barrio 18, depends on which country you're in. These gangs moved back to their countries of origin and have since grown into powerful actors in Central American society. These gangs are transnational in that sense. They're mostly made up of very young teenage men, although women are also allowed in the gangs, and they establish a sort of family identity. These gangs are very organized. There's a very strict hierarchy and they are very violent. They terrorize society. They have enormous territorial control. And because of their sort of reign of terror, uh, most adults and other people around them just kind of end up doing what they say. So they have become the de facto authority in many places in Central America. These gangs learned that they have political power that they wield through violence. So much so that in the past, the government in El Salvador has tried negotiating with them to solve the crime problem. What ended up happening in most cases was that there were behind-the-scenes sort of deals with the gangs where the gangs agreed to lower homicide rates, for instance, or to get word out to the street from the prisons that they had to calm down and hide, kind of lay low for a while so the violence and extortions, etc., would drop. Those things in the past produced temporary results at best. 
what was really interesting, by the way, from those examples is that the gangs did have such widespread control that when they promised something, the homicides, for instance, would go down. Since President Bukele took office in 2019, he has also tried a similar approach to holding secret negotiations with the gangs. He would promise them if they dropped the murder rate, prison conditions would improve. When the state of emergency started, it followed a very, very violent weekend, a sort of spike in crime. And then different newspapers and outlets have been reporting that there was a similar deal between Bukele and the top leadership. And he allowed some of the gang members to flee and escape and go to Mexico or Guatemala. And in return, they started this very ruthless, very effective crackdown on the gangs that uh, has been going on for nearly a year. When I was speaking to Carlos Martinez of El Faro, which uh, is a very brave, trustworthy newspaper that has been sort of uncovering scoop after scoop about the government, gangs, etc., he was telling me that he has been able to verify through gang contacts, gang sources, and sources in different areas in El Salvador that this state of emergency or this crackdown has been effective. Negotiating with gangs produced immediate effects. It was like a steroid for public security politics. Sit down to negotiate with them today, and tomorrow the murders go down. However, you remain a hostage to the pact. There is very, very little gang activity, less extortion. People are free to walk at night, to have a meal outside, to stroll at night, things that were absolutely impossible. I mean, it's hard to believe, but it's true. But also, like I mentioned, the reign of terror. Living under a gang-dominated area was very, very difficult. It is hard to comprehend the distress and anguish that so many people experience having to live every day under the fist of these criminals. If you had daughters, for instance, you were always constantly afraid that one gang member would fall in love with one of them and harass, rape, you know, or the gang would rape the women. I mean, these things were happening pretty much constantly. If you had a male son, you would worry that he would be forcibly recruited by the gangs. I mean, I myself remember going to these sort of gang-dominated neighborhoods. You could not go in if you didn't have the gang's permission. You went in in a car, you have to give the plate numbers, you had to signal with the lights in the car to get in. So my conversation with Carlos Martinez, other journalists, and my own experience it does seem to suggest that the gangs have either been imprisoned, they fled, or they're laying low and hiding somewhere because the gang activity has been effectively reduced. President Bukele's war on gangs has made him one of the most popular leaders in Latin America. If someone thought that the criminals could win the war for El Salvador, they were wrong. We have to put the criminals in jail. There's no other way. The crackdown on gangs is largely the reason for President Bukele's popularity. Last time I checked, it's hovering around 90%. And these statistics, by the way, are from an independent research. People really seem to like the fact that he has produced results regarding crime, extortion, you know, gang-related results, if you will. But also he is a person that knows 
how to craft his image very well. There's a lot of propaganda around Bukele. He's very young and he's very present on social media. He's always on TikTok. There's always this very sort of high-end, highly produced videos done by his PR team, which is absolutely huge. Many people who have been fired from the national media that he's closed down or whatever have actually gone to work for him. And they sort of have the latest technology, latest capabilities to produce these very sleek videos that are very effective. They are widespread. Everybody sort of has access to his message the way he wants it portrayed. With a highly produced speech to police, President Nayib Bukele celebrating the massive prison's opening, a cornerstone of his war on gangs. Also tweeting, they're not scary anymore, are they? He, at some point, announced he was building the biggest prison in the world. And he said, I'm going to show the prison in the inside once the prisoners, the inmates, are brought in here. The complex named the Center for the Confinement of Terrorism. The new complex, capable of holding 40,000 inmates, considered to be the largest of its kind in the Americas. No independent institution, as far as I know, when we were there, we tried, was allowed in. Instead, he uh, gave out this government-made videos where every inmate was heavily tattooed. I mean, their faces were tattooed and they looked very intimidating. And this was very interesting because gang members don't tattoo their face or haven't been doing that for a while. This was an older practice. And when the police started cracking down on them, they issued some order that you shouldn't have visible tattoos if you were a gang member, for instance. And the visible facial tattoos on these alleged gang members was the thing that caught the attention of journalists and human rights activists in the country. So all the people in the video, however, were heavily tattooed. And that was to counter the narrative or the investigations of journalists, human rights activists who were saying there's a lot of men who are not gang affiliated, who are being swept in these raids and are being locked in prison without a lawyer, without due process, and they are absolutely not gang members. So, who are these people? That's after the break. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today we are speaking with Monica Villamizar about her reporting for Al Jazeera's Fault Lines documentary on El Salvador's gangs. One of the people Monica spoke with who is concerned about the direction El Salvador is heading is Noah Bullock. He's an El Salvadorian-American who is executive director of Cristosal, a human rights organization which has documented more than 1,000 cases of arbitrary arrests since the state of emergency began. Last month, Cristosal concluded, after a year of monitoring the treatment of detainees, that there's enough evidence for El Salvador to be tried for crimes against humanity. The state of emergency restricts rights that can never be restricted. For example, due process rights, the right to defense. What was proposed as a response to a violent outburst over the course of a weekend has now radically transformed uh, the criminal justice system itself. So Noah was telling us that human rights activists are very concerned. You know, there's this sense, and a lot of people will tell you, 
these numbers, these sort of magic numbers of zero gang violence, zero gang presence, etc., have been obtained through really a suspension of civil liberties. The rights to a lawyer, the rights to information, the right to contact your family members when you're thrown into prison. You know, there's a lot of people that are being rounded up and taken to prison that are having absolutely no relation to gangs. They cannot defend themselves. There's allegations of torture inside these prisons. There does seem to be a pattern of people who have been killed while they're in custody of the state and no interest on the part of the investigative authorities to discover why. The conditions are horrendous and their family members are suffering tremendously because they sometimes never get a call to know what's going on with their loved ones, if they're being tried for something specific, if they're going to be locked here or there for a number of months or days. And under the state of emergency, a policeman can judge if someone's suspicious and that's sort of enough to detain them and take them to prison. And once they're in prison, the law is just basically not at all there. And you sort of disappear into this limbo where, you know, activists are really kind of saying we either need to go there and check and verify, we need to know numbers, how many people, what are you judging them for, what's the process and what does it look like? And it just seems like a, like a scary situation. What Monica found during her reporting is that the state of emergency has left some family members looking for their loved ones in the El Salvador prison system, some of them for months. We spoke to a gentleman called Gabriel Urrutia. He basically says that his daughter and wife have absolutely no relations to gangs, and the police would never tell him or any relative why they were being detained. It's been more than seven months. He doesn't know about their health conditions. His wife needs medication every day for high blood pressure, etc., and he doesn't know if she's getting it. He is certainly delivering the medication to prison, but doesn't know if she's getting it. There's no communication between relatives and inmates. And he believes one of them was basically reported by a citizen or by a gang member because she refused to go out with a gang member who was in love with her. So he basically thinks it was a sort of revenge thing because his daughter was already married and didn't pay attention to this gang member. And what he says is, I have no idea about where they are. I don't know if they're alive or dead. In El Salvador, Monica heard about an anonymous line that citizens can call to report anyone they think is a gang member. And with almost no restrictions on who police can arrest, this has opened up room for abuse. Citizens can sort of call and point fingers at people who they think are gang members. We inquired about this, how it works, etc. There wasn't a lot of information available. But from sort of reporting in the ground evidence, it seems like not much is needed for policemen to make arrests after someone has reported an individual as gang affiliations. So it really opens the door to, you know, anything, to be honest. If someone has a grudge against their neighbor, they might call and report them. We heard of cases of women who were 70-year-olds being reported as having gang affiliations. And, you know, for people who have covered the gangs, like myself and other reporters for many years, it is very unlikely that a 70-year-old woman would be actively part of a gang. And yet they were picked up by the police again and taken to prison and their families haven't heard anything. 
Monica's team spent over three months looking for someone who had spent time in prison to get an account of the conditions on the inside. Finally, they found someone willing to talk, but he asked to remain anonymous. I have nightmares about what I lived through in prison. They beat everyone. They stripped us and took everything. I saw many people leave that place dead. They have arrived alive and well. It was extremely hard for us to speak to people who had been incarcerated. Apparently, they think they, you know, they're in the system. So obviously, they think they might be watched over even after they're released or free. This person who we managed to interview said that he was arrested without any sort of concrete evidence or any concrete reason. He claims he was absolutely innocent, never had any gang affiliations, no tattoos. Nothing was ever sort of presented as hard evidence that he was part of a gang. And he did mention something very interesting, that they had the sort of mass audience with a judge, quote unquote, that they never met in person who was on a video link, uh, on a sort of Zoom, um, and, you know, read the charges for a number of men in the room, uh, dozens, without knowing them or hearing their case. So this is the type of thing that we've heard from the inside, and it does paint a picture of extreme injustice. The reason why it's very hard to verify these claims is because Bukele has implemented a system where there is absolutely no transparency. It's not a democratic system. It has no checks and balances. And with no checks and balances in place, we asked Monica, what did she hear from El Salvadorians on the streets about Bukele's policies? I think it's a very interesting question, and it's a very interesting phenomenon that is not only happening in El Salvador. I mean, a lot of people are talking about a sort of devil's bargain. Different countries, citizens are frankly fed up with crime and abuse, and they would rather vote in a government that is less democratic in return for some kind of safety. People from El Salvador really like Bukele for now because they see results, and the gangs were largely hated for good reason, and they see a sort of tough commitment to fight crime, which is rampant in Latin American cities. We're not only talking about El Salvador, we're talking about Caracas, Bogota, Mexico City, etc. And they see Bukele, not only Salvadorians, by the way, other Latin Americans, as this sort of answer. But people fail to sometimes sort of see the second or third derivative of things. And that's where I think it's important for journalists and organizations like Al Jazeera to really shed light on what's going on. How are you obtaining such, quote-unquote, magnificent results? You know, what's the price to pay? And are people willing to sort of sacrifice their liberties and their rights and, you know, democratic principles just in return for safety and no extortion and an easier life? And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan and Miranda Lynn with Amy Walters, Chloe K. Lee, Sonia Bagat, Nagin Oliai, David Enders, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. This episode was mixed by Tim St. Clair. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back 